This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Christy Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Thanks for being with us. If you're enjoying our podcast, please tell a friend. This is our third and final week to be discussing Kafka's popular novella, The Metamorphosis. In episode one, we looked at the author's life, his difficult relationship with his abusive father, and the context of the turn of the century. Uh, that he lived in so that we kind of situate ourselves in Kafka's world. We also took a look at the title and the first line of the story, trying to navigate the German pronunciations. If you could call it that. I don't even think we reached that level. <laughs> Sorry. I think German-speaking people would be insulted. For sure. Um, but one of the main takeaways we want to keep in mind from that discussion is the idea that Kafka is writing a story about a person who has changed into a vermin, a dirty bug, unfit not even for human sacrifice and that's a great point to have in mind as we continue now towards the end of the book by way of one interesting little anecdote that comes up a lot when people talk about Kafka's life and especially in relation to that word Berman uh, is about Kafka's Jewishness and how much of his writing and his experiences reflect persecution of Jews or how it might have been to be a Jew at this place in history, especially what we know now about the coming Holocaust. And there's lots of articles written on that. It's not necessarily interesting for us to discuss. I'm not sure they connect a lot to this story, except for one that I thought was you know worthy enough uh, that might be interesting. So during the time that Kafka was writing the book, he had some friends that were these East European Jews. They were poor, and he was hanging out with them a lot. And his father, Herman, didn't like it that he was hanging out with these low-class uh, Jews, and he called them vermin 
to Franz in a way to describe that his relationship with these guys were not acceptable. So there is, I thought, pretty interesting speculation that this personal interaction was where he took the name from the book, but I don't know that we know that for sure. I know Nazis called Jews that later on, but I really don't know that that's the connection to be made, although uh, that word is an interesting choice. Well, it's easy to say there is a lot of uh, projection in this book about his father. Oh my gosh, Um, no doubt about that. Well, last week we turned to philosophy uh, and kind of looked at this book, as you called it, through the lens of the existential worldview. We talked about how the core value of existentialism is human agency and the importance of taking personal responsibility for one's life, looking at everything through the lens of choice, that you have choices. And Christy, it was obvious, at least to me, that as an expression of existentialism, you found Gregor to be lacking. I don't think he knew about the word agency. I mean, I know we talk about it a lot, and maybe it's a modern word, but... I do find him lacking. He's passive about his own life. He's always been passive, you can see, from his reflections about his former pre-book life. Uh, He seems to justify uh, the choices that he makes in his mind. I think they look like irresponsibility, but he sees them as being willing to take responsibility for the other people in the world. And in a sense, of course, that's good to take responsibility for other people, but yet he refuses to take responsibility for his own self. And he finds ways to justify in his mind this refusal to assume agency. And it may be noble, maybe it's a good thing for others, but it's clearly It hasn't been good for him. And as a reader, we can clearly see that this perspective is confining him and his own personal growth. It's kind of expressed as this claustrophobia, being locked up, and it breeds despair. And I think maybe ultimately what eventually kills him. True. And, And this is where a lot of us can relate. When we look at Gregor's transformation into a bug and how repulsive he is, Uh, It's easy for many of us to see ourselves maybe in some way. I mean, to say, holy cow, this is my life. I've been a bug. I am a bug. (laughs) Uh, I'm letting other people make decisions for me that I should be making. I'm making excuses for my own inaction or using my own personal power. I'm a bug. I'm a bug. bug. (laughs) Or maybe it's just easier to be a martyr in our own minds and serve other people than to figure out what we want for ourselves and Questions that are actually harder than you would think. Gregor seems to never ask those kinds of questions amongst the all kinds of things he never does. And what you find out, at least what Kafka is expressing in the story, is after you've turned yourself into a bug, you you absolutely do not get what you thought you would get from this kind of relationship. This kind of living is actually repulsive to other people, and there's no meaning to it. Uh, the other way doesn't work at all well either because that's what he's done. Now he's living completely selfishly, which is what, you know, after you actually turn yourself into a real bug, that's <laughs> primarily what it leads to. It's real bug life. Yes. Gregor, you know, he clearly valued his family. He loved his family. He was sacrificing his whole life for his family. But there wasn't any reciprocity of respect for them for whatever reason. And so... He didn't ask for it. They didn't give it to him. So not even before physically turning into a bug and definitely not after. The relationships in this family 
were not healthy. They're not healthy now. And what we see develop into the second and third parts of the book are larger and larger illustrations of what isolation and alienation look like, and they ultimately overwhelm Gregor. And interestingly enough, this is the intuitive level that I think appeals to readers. Yeah, I think so. Isolation and, and I think, you know, different age groups who read this book interpret these metaphors, you know, differently during the context of their life situation. And there's some, you know, there's a lot of versatility in, in the way people have read this illustration to be significant for their own lives in whatever way. Good. Uh, before we move on to the rest of the book, I did want to revisit one more important takeaway from last week. And this is what Kierkegaard calls negative independence. Uh, the idea that if you are trapped in a situation like what we've been talking about, there's definitely something liberating and even healthy about dropping it all. And we see this happen to Gregor by turning into an actual physical bug. And all that responsibility that he had been carrying for his family, the finances for his father, for his sister, all that had been dumped on him is now gone. He's free. And that can feel positive. True, but Kierkegaard also says you can't stay in that place forever. You can't get, he calls it, get comfortable in the cage, so to speak. In Gregor's case, first, he did have a certain peace. Gregor sleeps, and that's something he hadn't done the night before his transformation. But staying in this place, getting comfortable in this place, Kierkegaard warns, leads to darkness, to negativity, to resentment, to isolation. And that's where we hit the story today, because we left Gregor in his room. He just found out that his dad had money, and he didn't know about it. And although his dad had never actually directly lied about the financial situation of the family, he had deceived Gregor into thinking that they didn't have money when they did. Right, and not only did he deceive Gregor, he used him. And that's that's an additional insult. And uh, but Gregor didn't seem all that upset about this discovery. Um, at this moment, he actually feels shame and guilt for being a bug and relinquishing his role as the provider for everybody. And of course, the main ideas we're going to look at today is they play out the rest of the story are the central ideas of shame and alienation. So to develop this, I want to kind of you know, lean out away from the existentialism I've kind of been focusing on or having us talk about all last week and get back into literary elements because there are some really interesting literary techniques worth looking at. And I think these are the ones that Kafka is going to use to really flesh out what he means by shame, alienation, and how this develops in our lives. First of all, we have this concept of imagery, metaphors, symbolism. So these are three elements in writing and they all kind of blend in together. And sometimes we don't know what's supposed to be just imagery, what's metaphorical, what's a symbol. We can understand that Kafka is drawn for us a picture in our brain of some sort of bug. And of course that's imagery. Then as we read it, we see that the images that might mean something, maybe they stand for something and that's kind of metaphor. But then, you know, what's do we know about symbols? We know what are the roles of symbols in any story and specifically in this story. So we know that symbols are things that are concrete, physical things uh, that represent something else. So in this story, you can't really say, oh, isolation is a symbol because isolation isn't a thing. It's an idea. 
but maybe the body of the bug is a symbol of Gregor's isolation, a concrete representation of something that is abstract and kind of hard to conceptualize. So the second question, when you think about stories like this, well, how do I know if something in a story is supposed to be a symbol? They don't tell you. And that is kind of a hard question. Authors imply these kinds of things and you have to figure them out. And of course, they're arguable. One indicator that something in a story could be symbolizing something bigger than it is, is if there is this one thing that stands out more than other things. It catches your attention. Maybe it's weird. Like we're going to see about that picture with the woman in the fur. That's kind of weird. And it's referenced multiple times. Things like that can be symbols like the door. Or maybe there's something that takes some sort of prominence in the story, like Greta's violin. And these are all symbols. And so you see something like that, you might wonder, well, if you think it's a symbol, then what could it possibly symbolize? So as we get into section two and three, we're going to see Kafka playing around with all these symbols. And like I said, they can be arguable. Lots of symbols have layers of meaning and they can develop over the course of the book or they can be interpreted in different ways. And that's the kind of thing people write about. But right off the bat, one of the first things that kind of catches everyone's attention, I think, is the door between the rooms. It opens, it closes. There's the business with the key going from one side to then to the other side. And then in the third section, we're going to see that they just start leaving the door open. Like they don't even care about it anymore. Well, what does that mean? What does the door mean? It's definitely in a place of prominence in the text. It's definitely a physical object. So then you think, well, Okay, the door fits all the requirements of a symbol, but where do I go from there? Then you have to think like this. Well, what are doors generally used for? Well, I would think that doors generally open things. They're portals from inside something to outside something. And then you think, well, that happens in a lot of stories. Sometimes we see stories where they go from one world to the next, like Narnia or something like that. And I think if we can project all that into this story, it's suitable. At the beginning, Gregor doesn't like his life, his job, his family. Well, he likes his family, but he wants to keep him out, his place. So what does he do? He locks the door and he wants to stay away inside in this confined space. But now that option is closing to him. He's been uninvited. The portal to the world has closed. So then in the third part, we're going to see that they're going to leave that portal open, but he doesn't even actually, you know, find a way to make it in. It, it, there's no access, and, and that's when he chooses to leave forever. So that's just something to have in mind as you kind of go through the rest of the story. Second symbol I want to mention, because this is exactly where we left off, is the window. Throughout the story, we see Gregor repeatedly turning toward the window. Maybe he looks to the window. Maybe he's looking for comfort or to reflect on something. That's how we use windows. But in this case, when he looks out and you see what he's looking, he confronts a view that's dreary, just like his situation. So just like doors, windows are used in a lot of different stories. And we know that in some cases they mean liberation. Think about Rapunzel looking out the window and all that kind of stuff, and then eventually laying down her hair. But in this story, whether the window is open or closed, there is no liberation. Instead, it's almost something of an intrusion. 
Gregor's inability to take any kind of responsibility for his life precludes the opportunity that any window or any exit opportunity might afford. I heard uh, the Nigerian writer A. Igani Barrett talk about this book because he wrote his own very influential book called Black Ass, actually, and it was inspired by Kafka's story. And he said, I heard this interview with him in the, with the BBC, and he said he got to thinking about Gregor, and he thought, why doesn't Gregor leave? Why doesn't he just walk outside and become the king of the cockroaches somewhere out there? That's right. What a great thought. He could have been master of the universe yes. of bugs. Well, uh, well, I want to say that uh, as a man of great agency, uh, Igony Barrett would like to see that. Yeah, because he is like that, unlike uh, Kafka's character, Gregor. And although it's arguable, uh, this is, I think, what we're seeing being dramatized through this window. By staying near the window, there's this idea that he has a desire to liberate himself from suffocation, isolation. But unlike Barrett, for whatever reason, he just stares. And then he just loses his ability to see. And then the window really isn't a reminder uh, of anything He's not of this world anymore. He's disappearing, and he's becoming something of this dreary wasteland, really. Well, you know, uh, another point to make, and I know many of us have this experience, windows express this idea that you're watching people live their lives, but you don't get to participate. They can be in themselves an expression of isolation. I mean, I read in the literature about Kafka that he often talks about windows in his letters to friends. He describes at great length what he sees going on outside from his window. He sees kids playing and activity near the river and just different people living their lives. And he seems fascinated by the idea that you could see into people's reality from the safe place inside of a window and people didn't even know they were being seen. I mean, this may be a fun thing at some point and people watching is fun. Sure. Uh, and what people do at outdoor cafes or at festivals is interesting, but sometimes if you do this by yourself, it's expressing a feeling of being isolated and not being a part of the world. And really that's what the second part seems to be about. He is no longer part of this world that he's always known. In fact, now he's been a bug for about a month. The world is developing into a place where they absolutely don't need him. His world has shrunk to a universe of one room with just one person, really. But the bigger point that I noticed that he isn't the only one that's had a metamorphosis. Greta has really made some huge changes, and her dad is a changing character, too. This is what the narrator says about Greta when her parents thought of her before his transformation. And I'm going to quote, they said this, they had frequently been annoyed with her because she had struck them as being a little useless. <laughs> nice. Well, now Greta's not useless. She has an important role in this change family dynamic. She's the expert on Gregor for sure. She's Gregor's caregiver. And there are several interactions in this, in this section that clearly demonstrate that. And speaking of transitions, Gregor is also transitioning into more and more of a comfortable bug guy i mean look he, hmm. he's running around he crawls over the walls he, he's finding it fun he likes it he doesn't have to stay on the ground he crisscrosses everywhere um i just want to make a little note here at this point 
We could have a whole sidebar discussion on agoraphobia, and <laughs> Gregor seems to be expressing that pretty pretty clearly. Um, so anyway, the the text says he especially liked hanging from the ceiling, which I would think would be fun. Sure. He says one could breathe more freely. So again, there is absolutely something to like about the bug life, and there aren't many people who haven't at one time another thought, I would love just to give it all up and hang from the ceiling. <laughs> It's a common fantasy. I mean, how many times have you heard someone say while lying on a beach, after they've done nothing but eat and drink and lay and sleep all day, say, I could get used to this. I know. I guess You're not far from true. being a bug. <laughs> I, I have to admit, I've been guilty of saying that one or two times myself. Uh, but in his case, his roaming around is actually going to be an impetus and it's going to cause this grand collision. Greta the new responsibility taker wants to take out all the furniture in the room. So Gregor has more space to run around, which is nice. It's compassionate from a practical sense, but in another sense, it's a confession of sorts that she's seen Gregor's actual nature. She needs her mom to help her move the furniture because it's too heavy. So the mom who hasn't been around Gregor this whole time, she comes in, and this becomes very emotional, both for the mom and for Gregor, too. Uh, more Freudian uh, parental psychology <laughs> connections there going on. The mom doesn't want to move the furniture. She comes in and says out loud that it's kind of an admission that her son is gone forever. I mean, it's a jarring moment for her, too. Well, when she speaks, you know, Gregor has the same reaction, Kafka says, and I quote, Even now, he had been on the verge of forgetting and only his mother's voice, which he had not heard for so long, had shaken him up. So you see that, you know, the old world for a moment is calling out to him, a world that he had gotten comfortable leaving behind. And now, all of a sudden, he doesn't want them to move the furniture either. <laughs> uh, strangely, he takes his first action towards agency. Does he get any points from you for that? No. Okay. Uh, it doesn't go well. Um, it's kind of a funny passage, and there is some grotesque humor in this book from time to time. There really is. So uh, we're going to take a moment to read uh, this uh, darkly comic uh, bug interaction. And so he broke out. The women were just leaning against the desk in the next room to catch their breath for a minute. Changed his course four times. He really didn't know what to salvage first. Then he saw hanging conspicuously on the wall, which was otherwise bare, Already, the picture of the lady, all dressed in furs, hurriedly crawled up on it and pressed himself against the glass, which gave a good surface to stick to and soothed his hot belly. At least no one would take away this picture while Gregor completely covered it up. He turned his head toward the living room door to watch the women when they returned. And, of course, lots of people have talked about how that symbol that picture is some sort of symbol and our attention is certainly drawn to this weird picture in the fur of this advertisement. It's described at the beginning of the story and then he brings it up here again. Lots of people say there's some sensuality in this. Who knows? Maybe there is. This is definitely ambiguous, but whatever it symbolizes exactly, it clearly represents something from his old life the person he used to be and it dawns on him that he's letting that slip away and somehow this is a very awkward last stand <laughs> <laughs> yes in a in a story Ugh. full of awkward yes uh, again we've been all in that place where you change your mind about something and suddenly you want to take a final stand and on whatever the issue is and you do 
But it's awkward and it doesn't come across like you think it might. No, it doesn't. And let's read what happens next because it it just gets more weird. He squatted on his picture and would not give it up. (laughs) See what I mean? He would rather fly in Greta's face. But Greta's words had now made her mother really anxious. She stepped to one side, caught sight of the gigantic brown blotch on the flowered wallpaper. And before it really dawned on her that what she saw was Gregor, cried in a hoarse, bawling voice, Oh, God! Oh, God! (laughs) And as if giving up completely, she fell with outstretched arms across the couch and did not stir. You, Gregor, cried his sister with raised fist and piercing eyes. These were the first words she had addressed directly to him since his metamorphosis. She ran into the next room to get some kind of spirits to revive her mother. Gregor wanted to help, too. There was time to rescue the picture, but he was stuck to the glass and had to tear himself (laughs) loose by force. Then he ran into the the next room as if he could give his sister some sort of advice, as in the old days. But then he had to stand behind her doing nothing while she rummaged among various little bottles. Moreover, when she turned around, she was startled. A bottle fell on the floor and broke. A splinter of glass wounded Gregor in the face. Some kind of corrosive medicine flowed around him. Now, without waiting any longer, Greta grabbed as many little bottles as she could carry and ran with them inside to her mother. She slammed the door behind with her foot. Now, Gregor was cut off from his mother, who was perhaps near death through his fault. He could not dare open the door if he did not want to chase away his sister, who had to stay with his mother. Now, there was nothing for him to do except wait. And tormented by self-reproaches and worry, he began to crawl, crawled over everything, walls, furniture, and ceiling, and finally in desperation, as the whole room was beginning to spin, fell down into the middle of the big table. It's just so weird. And here we have Gregor. He's left his room. He's gone through that portal. He's invaded the family space. He, He wants back in to the family dynamic. But yet, listen to the emotions. They're random, and his actions are frenetic. And there's several things to notice beyond just that. The first thing is that Greta calls him by name and addresses him. This isn't something that's happened before. He's in trouble. The power has clearly inverted. And Kafka emphasizes this by reminding us that these are the first words she's spoken to him since his metamorphosis. Then we see the torment and the running around like a crazy person up on the ceiling and then plopping down. You have to remember, well, how big is this guy? Of course, you can't even really tell. You know, he's somewhere between a little bug and a full human. I mean, (laughs) but either way, however you have it in your brain, it's extremely awkward. And remember, it's he's described as stinking, too. So when he falls down onto this table and he just lays there, what can you expect when his father comes in? And we're going to see that Greta is not the only character that's had a metamorphosis at this time. Listen to the description of the father when he comes in to see his wife passed out, glass on the floor, bug on table. You know, not good. (laughs) What a mess. (laughs) Read it for us. It's really funny. 
Was this the same man who in the old days used to lie wearily buried in bed when Gregor left on a business trip, who greeted him on his return in the evening, sitting in his bathrobe in the armchair, who actually had difficulty getting to his feet, but as a sign of joy only lifted up his arms, and who on the rare occasions when the whole family went out for a walk, on a few Sundays in June and on the major holidays, used to shuffle along with great effort between Gregor and his mother, who were slow walkers themselves, always a little more slowly than they, wrapped in his old overcoat, always carefully planting down his crutch-handled cane, and when he wanted to say something, nearly always stood still and assembled his escort around him. Now, however, he was holding himself very erect, dressed in a tight-fitting blue uniform with gold buttons, the kind worn by messengers at banking concerns. Above the high, stiff collar of the jacket, his heavy chin protruded. Under his bushy eyebrows, his black eyes darted bright, piercing glances. His usually rumpled white hair was combed flat. With a scrupulously exact, gleaming part, he threw his cap, which is adorned with a gold monogram, probably that of a bank, in an arc across the entire room onto the couch, and with the tails of his long uniform jacket slapped back, his hands in his pants pockets went for Gregor with a sullen look on his face. So there you have it. The father has gotten his power back. Look at the description of what he used to be versus the description of what he is now. And that uniform that's mentioned all those times, it's kind of a symbol of power in and of itself. So he's almost had a resurrection of sorts. And here he is coming for Gregor. And there's this bizarre chase around the room and they stop and start. And the narrator kind of describes it as if it's a slow motion. Although I know in 1915... Uh, I don't think they had slow motion. They didn't know what that word was. Mm -hmm. Or did they? Am I wrong? Well, uh, I mean, Edison had already invented the motion picture, but uh, there's several more years before the TV would come out in this concept of slow motion. But (laughs) anyway, uh, Kafka, I'm sure, did not know that expression. But as far as this chase goes, uh, it comes to an abrupt halt with this stranger or more strange act of violence. The father literally pummels apples at Gregor, and one of them gets him pretty good, causing his mother to beg for his life. Yes, and there's a lot that's been written about this bizarre event, too, because you see apples are just a strange weapon of they choice. They are a bizarre so weapon. So it's strange, it stands out, and you think, ooh, Is could it a be a symbol? <laughs> yes, and then, of course, we know that apples have often been traditional biblical symbols, although there isn't actually an apple in the Bible story, but that's beside the point. Apples are also used a lot in Greek mythology. They've come to symbolize temptation, knowledge, even immortality. Other people have noted that it's the apple that ultimately kills him. And look how he's described here. It was He was nailed to the spot and stretched out in his body in a complete confusion of senses. And so is Kafka trying to reference the crucifixion of Jesus? Are they crucifying Gregor? You know, I don't know. Uh, These kinds of things, you know, you can think about for days and you can write papers on. But we see the mother's clothes. That's This is strange, too. They kind of fall off. And she embraces the father in complete union with him. Strange wording. What's more obvious, and we see this at the beginning of the next chapter, 
is that the apple stays lodged in his back and serves as a reminder to the family that Gregor is their family member and look what they've done and here he is. He has this problem and they have a responsibility. The text reads like this. It was the commandment of family duty to swallow their disgust and endure him. Endure him and nothing more. Now, of course, the narrator from the beginning of the book is clearly speaking from Gregor's point of view. And here we see this oh, disgust, endurance. Uh, there's this, this expression of not just you know, isolation, but total alienation. He is not one of them anymore. He is a duty, a disgusting duty. And since this is clearly understood, you know, from now on, the door doesn't even need to be closed all the way anymore. It can stay cracked open because it's clear. Everybody knows. And Gregor's not going to go back in. He can look in, but really, he's not going back. So the burden of alienation has switched now over the course of the story. Um, And, of course, this brings up the big ethical question raised both in the Bible, but more recently by the uh, philosopher Immanuel Kant. The Bible says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Kant says it is the ethical principle that you should act towards others as if your actions served as a universal law applicable to everybody, including yourself. Which makes sense. That is the ethical principle. But does that apply to bugs? Well, I haven't used that method in the, with the fly swatter. <laughs> no, you haven't. <laughs> uh, most would say, no, it, it, it does apply to other forms of otherness and hence the ethical dilemma. I mean, the family seems to be struggling, struggling with this ethical dilemma. And although we're seeing the story through the eyes of Gregor, we find our sympathy switching towards the family in this third section of the story. I mean, Gregor is useless. He provides no value. He doesn't harm anyone directly, but he is causing harm to the family. Uh, they're embarrassed by his existence. They are grounded from leaving their apartment. Um, outside, people are uncomfortable and grossed out when they find out about the secret and it is a secret. They don't even have pleasant conversations in the house anymore. Uh, Gregor, uh, and the secret that is Gregor, is the darkness that weighs on them, the whole family. And how far does this ethical rule apply? I mean, can we make ourselves so loathsome to others that an outside observer would find our family members justified in dehumanizing us? Has, you know, has Gregor dehumanized himself? That seems to be what Kafka is asking, unpleasantly enough. I know, and he asks it a lot. You know, if you know the story, then some of these quotes that we were talking about uh, in the first episode kind of make sense when he says this, Every human being must be able to justify his life. No human being can live an unjustified life. Or the one that says, Man cannot live without a permanent trust in something indestructible in himself. These make sense when we look at the quotes through the perspective of the third chapter in this book. They finally answer the question, by the way, by the end of this book. They find the answer to their ethical question, and they're going to say, big, fat, no. (laughs) We don't have an ethical responsibility towards this guy. And we're going to not even feel that bad about it. Not after this last chapter. In the last chapter, Kafka does everything to create for the reader 
this expression of intense hopelessness on the part of everyone. The father's not getting out of his seat. Greta barely tries to feed Gregor anymore. They've all but given up on cleaning. It gets dirtier and dirtier and grosser, and there's a lot of detail about this. The family takes in boarders that are terrible people, and they treat them poorly, and they just put up with it. And the mother, this is a weird thing, she washes people's underwear for a living. I mean, that's just a strange detail. And why is that even necessary? Isn't that something people can do for themselves? True, but it's interesting, uh, all the choices he's made in this book. And that's, yeah. that one is interesting. Uh, so let me go back to existentialism for one more moment, because I see it here in this chapter. Um, theistic and atheistic existentialism disagree when it comes to the idea of hopelessness. Theistic existentialists find hope and purpose in God. Kafka went a different direction. Kafka follows the line of thinking of the more famous Nietzsche, who many know for his famous line, God is dead. And Kafka agrees with Nietzsche in part, but he answers back that we shouldn't let his shadow, shadow meaning his ethics, uh, disappear from our souls as well as God, because together with God's shadow, we shall also disappear from the earth. And what he means by this is that even though atheism can lead to hopelessness because it often takes away hope from the human soul, holding on to ethics can be an answer to that. And that is something that must be fought against because for Kafka to give up hope is to give up life. And I think that is what this third chapter is all about. And of course, uh, Nietzsche calls that Kafka's absurd hope. But we'll save Camus and the idea of absurdity for his own body of work later on. This is already deep and dark yeah, enough. Yeah, we've, we've front-loaded a lot of philosophy, and you know that makes my head spin if I think about it long enough. But, of course, that's exactly uh, what's happening in this strange, you know, metaphysical, really, scene uh, that is this last bit of the book, this culmination of a loss of hope. The awful borders are out in the dining room where the family used to sign although now they have to dine in the kitchen. And Greta's in there playing the violin, and they ask her to come out, and she does. Uh, the door has been left open uh, to Gregor's room so he can hear Gre- Greta play. But unfortunately, the boarders, uh, by the way, they don't even know about the bug, but they're <laughs> mean, and they don't like her playing. But Gregor likes her playing. Uh, these lines are kind of recognizable. Uh, Gary, let's read these last lines that, of Gregor thinking about uh, while she's playing the violin. Was he an animal that music could move him so? He felt as if the way to the unknown nourishment he longed for were coming to light. He was determined to force himself on until he reached his sister to pluck at her skirt and to let her know in this way that she should bring her violin into his room for no one here appreciated her playing the way he would appreciate it. He would never again let her out of his room, at least not for as long as he lived. For once, his nightmarish looks would be of use to him. He would be at all the doors of his room at the same time and hiss and spit at the aggressors. His sister, however, should not be forced to stay with him, but would do so of her own free will. She would sit next to him on the couch, bending her ear down to him, and then he would confide to her, that he had had the firm intention of sending her to the conservatory, and that, if the catastrophe had not intervened, he would have announced this to everyone last Christmas. Certainly Christmas had come and gone, without taking notice of any objections, 
After this declaration, his sister would burst into tears of emotion, and Craiger would raise himself up to her shoulder, kiss her on the neck, which ever since she started going out to work, she kept bare without a ribbon or a collar. Gary, what do you think of this awkwardly strange passage? First, that violin, it meets the criteria for a symbol. It represents, really, the love that Gregor has for his sister. I mean, it was his gift to her. It's also a symbol of culture. He wanted to send her to the conservatory. But then he says that he's seeing himself as an animal. He asks if he were an animal you know, is he an animal that he could be moved by music? How is this animalistic? True. Yeah. And he reaches out to Greta. I mean, he's had so many opportunities to reach out to her. And now he reaches out to her, but his thoughts are possessive in nature. And he thinks of not letting her out of his room. Some would call that kidnapping. (laughs) He fantasizes that she would stay in there of her own free will, which we all know would not happen. Uh, This is not a reciprocal relationship. This is no better than the reversal of what was wrong at the very beginning. He crossed the portal into the community of the outside, but he is not of that community anymore. And he never will be. Uh, He's not thinking like a community member. He's repulsive and offensive and not just useless. He's now harmful. Well, his presence in that room in front of those boarders doesn't go well. (laughs) I mean, they (laughs) freak out. They demand money because now they see the house is dirty. They got this bug in it. And the mom, of course, she, I don't know, is this a panic attack? She has some sort of attack. And the father aggresses the boarders. But it's Greta's voice that really is the climactic line. And she says this, we must try to get rid of it. Hmm. And she calls Gregor an it. The last time she called him by his name, but so much for that, his dehumanization is gone, is complete. She says, you, have, you just have to try to get rid of the idea that it's Gregor. Believing it for so long, that is our real misfortune. But now, how can it be Gregor? If it were Gregor, he would have realized long ago that it isn't possible for human beings to live with such a creature, and he would have gone away of his own free will. Then we wouldn't have a brother, and we'd be able to go on living and honor his memory. But as things are, this animal persecutes us, drives the rumors away, obviously wants to occupy the whole apartment, and for us to sleep in the gutter. Ugh. That's an indictment, and it's strong language, and she's being firm. Yes, and of course, Gregor doesn't disagree with Greta. I mean, as we see, his death follows, and it's strangely described. You don't really notice that he's been killing himself for a while by not eating. True. I mean, they've mentioned that he's not eating. It talks about him spitting out his food, but I really wasn't following when I was reading it that this was some sort of suicide attempt until it was over. And I'm not sure it is a suicide attempt. The causality of his death is really ambiguous. He wasn't eating, that's true, but he also had the injury of the apple. He's living in total filth, basic neglect. So all of these things, I'm sure, played a role. So is it his fault? Is his family responsible for his death? Well, it seems that Gregor Samsa commits suicide for the well-being of the family. I mean, in other words, ethically, Gregor does the right thing existentially. He doesn't serve any purpose, so he cancels his own existence in the end. And as we see, the family is better off for it. And it's amazing how quickly this changes the dynamic. 
which I think is horrible. But one thing to notice is that the story at this point changes how it refers to the parents. Where up to this point, it's been mother, father. Now they're referred to as Mr. and Mrs. Samsa. When the cleaning lady finds Gregor dead, she says, come and have a look. It's croaked, which is horrible. <laughs> it's croaked. It's, I know. It's lying there, dead as a doornail. And it says, the couple, Mr. and Mrs. Samsa, sat in their marriage bed and had a struggle overcoming their shock at the cleaning woman before they could finally grasp her message. It's like they're new people. And Mr. Samsa says, now we can thank God, which is horrible. <laughs> and then it says that they cross him themselves. He crosses himself and the three women do as well. Of course, that's a Catholic symbol. It's a religious symbol. Greta then's going to look down and notice, you know, him that he'd stopped eating, and the vulgar cleaning lady is eventually the one that gets rid of the body. Uh, so we have this sense of strangeness, and nothing sad is is being expressed at this culmination of his death. And so, Gary, I know this is the end of the book, but let's read this final paragraph. Okay. Then all three of them left the apartment together, something they had not done in months, and took the trolley into the open country on the outskirts of the city. The car, in which they were the only passengers, was completely filled with warm sunshine. Leaning back comfortably in their seats, they discussed their prospects for the time to come, and it seemed on closer examination that these weren't bad at all, for all three positions about which they had never really asked one another in any detail, were exceedingly advantageous and especially promising for the future. The greatest immediate improvement in their situation would come easily, of course, from a change in apartments. They would now take a smaller and a cheaper apartment, but one better situated and in every way simpler to manage than the old one which Gregor had picked for them. While they were Talking in this vein, it occurred almost simultaneously to Mr. and Mrs. Sampson as they watched their daughter getting livelier and livelier that lately, in spite of all the troubles which had turned her cheeks pale, she had blossomed into a good-looking, shapely girl, growing quieter and communicating almost unconsciously through glances. They thought it would soon be time to find her a good husband, and it was like a confirmation of their new dreams and good intentions when at the end of the ride, their daughter got up first and stretched her young body. Yuck. What do you think of that ending? <laughs> you know, I was going to mention Kafka didn't like the ending that he wrote, but what do you think of it? Uh, well, it's uh, <laughs> a couple things. There's no moral closure. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And, and instead of Gregor finding meaning and creating identity and breaking free, I mean, he shrinks into total nothingness and the family in turn finds a, a renewed hope because of his demise yeah there is definitely no redemption in this story so you know i'd like to think it's a cautionary tale something lessons from the bug but somehow i'm pretty sure kafka would frown on that <laughs> He wouldn't mean it that way. Uh, I'm not sure either, but it seems the existential thing to do is to let it speak for itself. <laughs> the angst is already on me. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, well, so on that note, <laughs> let me invite you to change courses with us next week uh, as we move along in history to another Jewish writer, this time Elie Wiesel, as we read his memoir, Night, 
a recollection of experience at age 15 of being taken to Auschwitz. I look forward to that nonfiction. Thanks for being with us. Like us on Facebook and Instagram and check us out on howtolovelitpodcast.com. Tell a friend about us. Text an episode. Check it with us. We'll see you next time. Peace out. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> <laughs> 